Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. You jump over it, you incorporate it, you, you, you move beyond it, you get to something else. Well, you can use a citizen body like that. You can say, we're in a jam, let's bring in a citizen body. Hello, and welcome to Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Uh, before we jump into the episode, if you downloaded the Roger Air episode from a couple of days ago, which is a great conversation, and I hope you did or tried to, but you downloaded it and you got just like an audio mess. We had an, a, a crack up in the way the thing got edited and posted and something wasn't muted. And so it's just a, a garble. Um, we fixed it that same day. Uh, so the one that you would find in your feed now is corrected and all the audio is crystal clear, perfect, beautiful. Um, you can follow the conversation, which is great. But if you got the original bad one and didn't look back for another one, um, please give that a check. And also, sorry if it was early in the morning and you were taking the dog for a walk or going to work and you were all excited or somewhat excited and you put that on and it was just <laughs> whatever it was. Uh, you know, technical errors, man, they happen. Anyway, so check that out again. It is correct now um, if you somehow missed it. And if you just missed it because you missed it, it's, a, I think, a really interesting episode about uh, the Christian, the post-Christian culture wars. So it's worth checking out. All right. My guest today is Jane Mansbridge, who is a Harvard professor of political science. But, but the reason I wanted her on the show, she, she's sort of a legend in the study of representative democracy, of deliberative democracy. She was president of the American Political Science Association from 2012 to 2013. I often get a request from folks in the audience when I talk in the pessimistic way I do talk about it, about polarization. I've often gotten the request, can you look at deliberative democracy? Isn't one possible answer to polarized politics a more deliberative democracy, different ways in which we can talk to each other, different ways in which we can talk to our representatives? And in constructing a process such that we are thinking aloud together and seeing the way the others really think outside just kind of the hum of cable news or whatever, the other kinds of political media, don't we come to better decisions that way? And I've always been quite skeptical of this because I'm, I'm skeptical that these solutions actually scale. But Mansbridge is the editor of, uh, of a work on how you can literally scale <laughs> deliberative democracy. So she seemed like the right person to have this conversation with. So I'm appreciative that she was here. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But here's Professor Jane Mansbridge. Jane Mansbridge, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So let, let's begin by situating a bit in polarization, as, as you understand it, because you've offered some very clear explanations for it. So why why are we so polarized today? Okay, well, there's lots of reasons. I, I go for the big three. First, uh, back in 1964, President Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act. Um, and then, you know, we all know, uh, gradually, Southern conservatives started leaving the Democratic Party, joining the Republican Party. That made the Republican Party more socially conservative considerably, and it made the two parties more homogeneous um, so that the Democratic Party became more liberal nationally. It didn't actually, the citizens didn't actually become all that much more liberal, but what happened was um, in the South, pretty much large numbers of people other than the sort of African-Americans left the party, and African-Americans are more liberal uh, than the average American. So that left the Democrats more liberal. So if you add them to the party, the Democratic Party got somewhat more liberal. The Republican Party got very much more conservative. And the two parties separated because of this move of the Southern conservatives into the Republican Party. That's the first big cause. So the next one that I think is really important is, is Frances Lee's point in Insecure Majorities. Uh, she points out that in 1980, 
you got a really competitive, began to get a really competitive Congress. Um, before that, this long period of, you know, wonderful bipartisanship that we think of was actually a period of democratic hegemony. That's when the Democratic Party was um, more or less all powerful in the uh, House and Senate. Um, they didn't have to worry about reelection. They were going to get reelected. And they were also f factions in the Democratic Party. So some had to lean out and g get Republicans to pass the legislation in one regard. Other factions had to lean out and get other kinds of Republicans to, to pass other kinds of uh, legislation. So the Democrats were very, very used to leaning across the aisle and pulling in Republicans on this, this issue or that issue. And they didn't have to worry about uh, getting a majority. They knew they had one. For, they'd had one since, you know, World War II. I want to note here for, for folks interested in this, Francis Lee is a past guest on the podcast. I think it's called Why Bipartisanship is Irrational. And it's a great conversation about exactly this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she's terrific on this. She's got some fabulous graphs. Uh, well, I mean, you, all you need in a way is the graph showing um, percentage of Democrats in their house and percentage of Democrats in, in the Senate. And you see, da, 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 you know, along, 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 Democrats winning with huge majorities. And then, um, and then it gets competitive. And once it gets competitive, uh, the Republicans begin to see um, that if they can destroy the Democrats, then they're going to get a a majority. And that changes the incentives. Before that, when the Democrats were um, in power and were going to be in power forever, it pays the permanent minority party to kind of kiss up to the permanent majority party. Um, you're not going to get, you know, your bridges and your harbors and so forth if you don't, you know, make nice to the people in power. And the Republicans were. That's a little bit too strong, but that's that's the underlying incentive. These are real people, and these people had relationships. So I'm not suggesting it's all this power, but that underlying power structure was there, and Republicans needed the Democrats to get their stuff done, and the Democrats needed the Republicans to get various majorities when their own party wouldn't go along. One way I've tried to describe this a bit, which I also think is, is it was helpful for me when it was explained to me, was if you, you could think of in periods of more or less one party rule, at least in the Congress, that representatives have an incentive set that goes like, number one, get reelected, and number two, affect policy. And those two things actually uh, coexist pretty well because if you can go home and say, hey, look, all these bridges have my name on them. You should reelect me. That's not a bad argument. But then if you can win back the majority, then it becomes number one, get reelected. Number two, win back the majority. Number three, affect policy. And winning back the majority and affecting policy can cut in different directions. Winning back the majority might mean not cooperating, so you can make the majority into a failure, whereas affecting policy means cooperating. And so when you weren't going to win, cooperation was probably the dominant strategy. But when you you when everybody's always on the knife's edge of winning power again, well, then what you want to do is make the people in power look terrible. And you don't cooperate. Um, to, if you cooperate, they look great. Exactly, exactly. Um, you have to understand that Getting a majority is also a matter of getting things done. In other words, when you have uh, an agenda, it's not just bridges, it's something you want to do for the country, then you see getting a majority not just as a power play that's going to something, 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 but it's also a way of getting done what you think is important for the country, whether you're a Democrat or Republican. So getting things done is behind both of those, if you see what I mean. It's just a different mechanism. When you think you could get the majority, then right. it really pays to destroy the majority. And that's right. tough. That's I tough. think that's a very important point. Yeah. That's really tough for these people who... Um, you know, who grew up in the Democratic majority situation. So they were used to reaching across the aisle. They had, of course, they made friendships across the aisle, often with very different kinds of people from them, people whose other whose views they abhorred in certain ways. But in order to get things done, they reached across the aisle for them. Uh, and then, you know, when the situation changed, some of them were caught up short. And several, many people retired from Congress at that point. They said, I don't want to play. I don't want to play this uh, kill them game. Um, I, I liked the game in which you were trying to get things done together. So quite a few people did retire at that point. 
Um, and Frances Lee describes this, uh, I think, beautifully with interviews that she has. Um, so that was that's the second thing. Once it got competitive, it paid each party to destroy the other. And she, Frances Lee, also shows that similar uh, dynamics uh, seem to happen in the states when the state legislatures become competitive. Then um, it very much pays you not to let your opponent get something that he or she can take back to the constituents and say, hey, well, for me, you want to destroy them. It's so simple as that. And then can you talk a bit about the idea of inequality and polarization? I haven't talked that much about that on the show because I am unconvinced. And I think that in your work on this, you also have a slightly ambivalent view towards that explanation. But because I haven't talked about it that much, uh, could you give an overview of how you think about the inequality explanation for polarization? Sure. Well, first, the inequality uh, explanation, one of its big pieces of evidence is, look, you've got this graph on polarization. Uh, You used to have very, very high polarization at the time of the last Gilded Age, and then it sinks. It sinks before the war. Polarization goes down and down and down and down and down. You've got very little polarization for a big chunk of time between whatever it is. Um, 1940 or so or 1980, and then starts going back up again. And then it reaches a high, a polarization is as high now as it was in the Gilded Age. And guess what? Inequality follows exactly that same curve. So it's pretty easy to think, well, you know, maybe there's some causal relationship between the two because uh, these two U-curves are um, really mapped pretty well onto to one another. One problem in those U-curves, I think you probably noticed this yourself, is that the polarization comes a bit before the inequality. And you, when you're trying to think about what the mechanisms are, um, it's pretty easy to think that inequality could cause polarization because you know rich people get more money, they go into politics, um, they want to stop things, and the Democrats say, wait a minute, you know, and hate back. Um, and then their rich people come pouring in with their money. And we know that, um, well, first of all, we know that out-of-district, this is Nolan McCarty's and others' work, we know that out-of-district contributions have uh, skyrocketed. So usually it was sort of people around you who were giving money to your campaign. No, now it's people all over the United States giving money to your campaign because you're going to be, your seat is critical. So out-of-district contributions soared. And we know, too, that those out-of-district contributors, they're much more extreme than the rest of the country. The individual contributors are, corporations are not particularly um, extreme usually. But what these individual contributors, you know, like me, I give money to all sorts of state races outside of Massachusetts. um, And I'm not your typical middle of the road Democrat, I'm more liberal than that. So you can see how inequality, which gives people lots of money to give to causes, could cause polarization. And you can see how polarization can create inequality by stopping any kind of taxation system or any kind of redistribution system that's going to help with inequality. But as I just described it to you, inequality would come first and then polarization would reinforce it. But here you've got polarization coming first and inequality following. So, you know, it's a little harder to come up with a mechanism in in that regard. It has seemed to me that another way of reading that chart is that both polarization and inequality might actually have a similar causal mechanism. So I'm very skeptical of the argument that inequality is leading to these external donation patterns. Um, I think you could have a lot less inequality than we do now and still have very, very similar out-of-state donor patterns. Um, You know, it is the case that super rich people donate a lot of money, but that's not really what's driving a lot of that. And so something that I think is true is that nationalization of politics has driven a fair amount of polarization. Uh, It's, God, there there are a hundred political scientists named D, like with the first name D and then Hopkins. I believe it's I'm going to get it wrong. It's David Hopkins, Daniel Hopkins, who wrote The Increasingly United States of America. And he shows very clearly that as we've nationalized, the states have become less uh, mixed in terms of their internal political dynamics and more red and blue. And then as the media environment is nationalized, that's driven a certain amount of polarization. And I would argue that there's a similar argument in equality and economic studies where as things nationalize or globalize, you get these big winner-take-all markets. As you're, as it's easier to compete for more customers simultaneously, the people who win the competition end up with a lot more money um, just because it's, it's such a bigger market. 
And so I think there's an argument that the same forces leading to political nationalization are leading to economic nationalization and globalization, some of them being media and information and so on, and that you're seeing a, a similar causal mechanism on both sides. That makes sense to me that, that uh, in other words, the, the prize is greater. Uh, but in national politics, the national prize was always great, wasn't it? I mean, you might say, well, now we're making more decisions, but back in uh, the New Deal era, we were certainly making pretty darn big decisions. The prize was pretty big. I would argue more that the capacity is greater, that the prize has always been big. Um, I mean, it was true for every, for both economics and politics forever. And I should say I'm not super wedded to this explanation, but more that, I mean, media is a really good example that fits both. Uh, it is much easier with a nationalized media to both nationalize politics and to nationalize markets um, because of advertising and you know the way a, a, a craze can kind of instantly spread. It's much easier to make everybody aware of the product of Ted Cruz in a way that would have been harder back in the day. And it's much easier to make everyone aware of the product of, I don't know, the new Zelda game or you know, pick your, pick your consumer good. And so it's not that the prize is so different, but that the structure of communication and information and other things is different. And it's just leading naturally to more nationalization of everything. And nationalization has the consequence in politics of polarization and the consequence in economics of inequality at least if not stopped by other kinds of policy. I'm not 100% sure that nationalization will always create polarization. For example, in Europe, countries have gotten more and more centralized just the way they have here. But um, one of the responses has been to, to create coalition governments opposite to polarization. You know, I'd have to kind of, I'd have to think a little bit more about the idea that nationalization will always cause polarization. Because as I say, it's not the size of the prize. The size of the prize has been pretty darn big in the past. So you're saying, well, that's the communications media. If you want to say about the communications media, all the stuff about social media, of course that's polarizing. But that's not your argument. Your argument is the nationalization of the of the media. You know, FDR did these fireside chats, people listening to them, to him everywhere, writing to him. If the nationalization of the media created polarization, you'd expect that to create polarization. In other words, I don't quite see every time you have moved toward more nationalization, you get more polarization. If that were true, we've been on a steady rise in nationalization. It's a, like, like, like it's a, more or less a straight line, but the polarization thing is a U-curve. So it doesn't quite work for me. Yeah, that, may, that makes a lot of sense. I have some thoughts on it, but I don't want to, to get us super caught on my like harebrained theory about <laughs> inequality and polarization. Um, let me, I want to ask you one more foundational idea before we get into some of the solutions for it. We keep using the word polarization, like it has a singular meaning. But there are a lot of different kinds of polarization. There's polarization people have over issue positions. There's effective polarization where you know everybody's issue positions are the same, but how they feel about the other party can change. Uh, there, there are all kinds of polarization. Which kinds of polarization do you feel confident saying have increased? And which kinds of polarization are you not confident have increased? Well, on, in regard to issues, I just rely on you know the McCarty pool and Rosenthal measure. Um, I'm not an, a, I'm a democratic theorist. I, I'm not precisely an Ameri a Congress scholar, so um, I just I rely on that measure. Um, in regard to the affect, well, you got these other measures about um, would you marry someone in the opposite party with whatever it is, 5% or something, saying they would feel uncomfortable that with their kid marrying someone in the opposite party back in 1960 or so. And now it's almost 70%, I think, saying they'd feel uncomfortable with their kid marrying someone in the opposite party. Well, that's affect. I mean, that's definitely emotions there. And that's, I think, caused by the fact that the parties have become more homogeneous. It, it didn't mean so much in those days. Now it means a lot, and there's a lot of affect behind it. Support for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. 
If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Constant Contact is a marketing platform that makes it easy to reach new audiences, grow your customer list, and connect over email, text, social media, and more. Whether you're a marketing guru or just learning the ropes, Constant Contact offers writing assistance tools and automation features that make it simple to say the right thing at the right time. So get going and start growing your business today with a free trial at ConstantContact.com. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. So how can negotiation act as a salve to polarization? It can't be an answer to polarization. It can be a mitigating factor. And um, at the Kennedy School, where we've been working on uh, on helping members of Congress and state legislators learn the basics of negotiation skills, we have a mantra, which is you can negotiate with enemies. You can get better results by negotiating with your enemy than by fighting a war to the death. So it's mitigating. It's not a, an answer. Um, and it it works by just um, trying to find the pieces of the larger puzzle in which it makes sense to work together. Um, and there are often those things, even if you're an awarded to the death uh, with an enemy, you can maybe have a truce over Easter, you know, um, that allows both your sides to recoup. So a question I have about that is, it seems to me to presuppose that what people want is material interests as opposed to symbolic politics or kind of to raise zero-sum competition of group status in society. And so I very much agree that negotiation can create a positive sum space, but it often seems to me the problem in politics is that people seem like what they want is material goods, but actually they're arguing about something deeper about who they are or who the country is or who gets respect. And then it's very hard to pull them or about elections. Um, and it's very hard then to pull them back out of a zero-sum space and, and into a positive-sum space. So are there ways to, to do that? Well, I think you've got a group of people. When you think of people who run for office, yes, they are deeply embedded, enmeshed in partisan um, thinking a partisan, they're activists, they come out, often they're activists, not always, but they often come out of some partisan background. Uh, yes, they're all, they're deeply enmeshed in identity issues. But the kinds of people who run for office are also the kinds of people who like to get things done often. They like seeing a bridge grow up, knowing they're behind it. They, they're, they're can-do kinds of people. And I think the people who vote for them look for that. Uh, consciously or unconsciously, as well as looking for the identity part. And that's what you can uh, build on. You can build on that wanting to get things done. Um, as I say, people resigning from Congress, one of the reasons they did it was just they didn't like the atmosphere anymore. But another was they were frustrated at not being able to get things done. And um, so you can play on that. I, I uh, Every year at the Kennedy School, uh, every election cycle, the Kennedy School has a little one or two day program for new members. And in 2016, a Democrat and a Republican new member got the new class to sign a, a statement saying they were going to try to cooperate across the aisle. I think a very large number, if not all of them, signed it. But what's interesting to me is the two people who initiated that were a Latina Democrat and a, a general in on the Republican side. Well, you know, generals come out of a, a space in which they want to get things done and they're used to getting things done and their identity is not only partisan, their identity is bound up with getting things done. And that Latina also had gotten things done in her past and she needed things done for her people and for not just her Latinx people, but large numbers of other people she thought were hurting and needed things done. So I think you've got to take into consideration the fact that the people that we elect are not just partisans. They're also human beings who have an identity wrapped up in being able to act, being able to act constructively on the world. 
I'm a bit of a deep structuralist about this. I, I think that politicians can be many different things depending on what they see their incentives as and what they think people want of them. And so I think that part of it is that the context in which many of these people are operating today, it it just is more polarized. It is less focused on on negotiation. I mean, that 2016 agreement didn't lead to a lot of actual congressional um, bipartisanship. And so one one of my questions here is, can deliberation, negotiation, uh, some of these other projects be used to change the broader context of American politics? If you assume that our representatives are in some way an outcome of what's going on in the broader society, which I think is an arguable premise, but, 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 but assume it for a second, I often hear that people make the case that approaches to deliberative democracy where you engage people more in the negotiation process can change the way they view politics and maybe then downstream change how their representatives do it. I'm always skeptical because I worry about these things being done at scale. But you have edited a book about deliberative democracy at scale. So I'd like to hear a little bit uh, of your view on you know, whether or not that is a, a solution here that can scale, and if so, how? Right. I, I would maybe stay away from the word solution, but a, a way of mitigating the, the problems, uh, I think it definitely is. So I think not only teaching negotiation to congressional staff, to congressional members, to uh, state legislators, not only is teaching are teaching the rudiments of negotiation to those legislatures, legislators, uh, not only is that a good idea, but finding ways of bringing um, more deliberative citizen voices into politics is also part of a way to make to uh, mitigate the uh, disastrous effects of polarization. So uh, how do you do that? How do you take it to scale? Um, well, one of the th recent books that I think is absolutely terrific is Michael Neblo uh, and his co-authors, uh, Kevin Esterling and uh, David uh, Laser, um, have got a book called Politics with the People. And they have a set of experiments which I think are completely easily uh, scalable, not that expensive. What they've done is to figure out ways in which you can bring 175 constituents together on the internet with a member of Congress for an hour discussing some pretty big issue like immigration or terrorism. It's not just question and answer. It's also that the the people to some degree are talking among themselves, but um, you can get fairly deep into an issue um, with an hour on the internet. And the citizens who go through this process are um, very, very positive. What we need to know and what they didn't study is what happens to the members of Congress. But I think the more the members of Congress hear the voices of average citizens in contrast to activists, uh, the more they will not only become sort of a bit more rooted in what's going on uh, in their constituencies, but also uh, take on a bit of more of the tone and maybe even occasionally uh, learn something. We know from some of the work David Brookman and others have done recently that members of Congress miss estimate uh, they they are incorre incorrectly estimate what's going on in their constituencies they think their constituencies are much more right wing than they are so members of congress don't know as well as they should what their constituents really want and it's filtered through the activists um it's filtered through the media um it's filtered through the people who contact them I think the more we can get members of Congress in touch with their own constituents on, in a deliberative way, actually thinking about and considering and weighing the pros and cons of different things with their constituents, the more they'll be brought to that space. Now, <laughs> you and I both are believers in deeper structural causes, so I'm not saying this is going to change everything. But if we're talking about how do we accept the situation and make it better, I think we can make it better through some of these deliberative mechanisms. So something that, that you mentioned in there is that oftentimes the citizens and constituents that members of Congress have the most contact with are the most polarized, or the activists, the ideologues, the interest groups. So in this model, how are people chosen? 
such that you don't just replicate the issue of, say, town halls right now, which is the people who show up to the town halls are very different from, um, on average, that just the people in the district. Yeah, well, now we've got a, you know, we've got a set of mechanisms using random selection of citizens to counteract that. And uh, that me- those mechanisms have now been pretty well tested over the last 20, 30 years, and um, they're fantastic. Uh, you know, Jim Fishkin's work uh, with deliberative polls, Democracy When the People Are Thinking, his other book, The People Speak. Um, but all over Europe, all over, you know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, China, Mongolia, uh, 27 countries have used deliberative polls, and many more have used other forms of picking random groups of citizens, bringing them together for a weekend, uh, giving them some important issues to discuss, giving them um, background materials and and experts that have been signed off on by both sides and so forth, Um, letting them think about these things, letting them ask each other questions, letting them ponder it all. You get really thoughtful, thoughtful responses from citizens when they're put in these kinds of deliberative settings. What is a deliberative poll? A deliberative poll, well, you bring about 200 people together, randomly chosen. You um, produce uh, various incentives so that the kinds of people who would not normally go uh, to something like that would be more likely to go. Uh, You have it at a you know, a neat hotel, and um, and you make a big deal of it. You know, your country wants you, like the like jury duty or like uh, the army. Um, and this is this is something you can do as a citizen: is come together and talk about this. And this is how it's going to be important. This is how we're going to use it. Um, and you can get a pretty representative sample that way. Um, and then you bring them together for a weekend. You give them background materials. You bring them in. You um, you have them meet in small groups of twelve. Then they go. One one of the things that uh, Fishkin does in the deliberative polls that I think is very good that he doesn't make a big fuss about, but I, that I like as a feature of his, the way he does it is um, the very first meeting of the twelve people. What they do is to figure out what questions they want to ask the experts. And one of the good things about that, you learn about the partisanship of the other people, but in the process of a common goal, which is what questions would be good questions from our group. And you're in a little bit competition in a way with the other groups of 12 because you want your questions to be the ones that are asked. That's a tiny little competition, not much, but you know, you, you want to have some good questions that the, the experts are going to answer. So it puts you together in a space with a common goal. Then the experts are asked these questions, they give the answers, and da, da, da. then you meet again, and then you start to talk about substance. But you've already met. You've already met one another for a quite important session about asking what questions you're going to ask the experts. Then you meet again. Oh, by the way, they've taken a poll, a survey of the people who are coming in to the deliberative poll at the beginning of it. Then after they've talked and thought and talked with their, you know, listened to the experts, talked with these other people in their small groups and so forth. Um, At the end, you take another survey and you see how their views have changed. And quite frequently, their views change in very systematic and sometimes very large ways. And that's quite important information for any any other citizen to learn and also for any politician to learn is what the people would think if they were weighing these issues seriously and really getting to hear the other side. It seems to me that if you take deliberative democracy approaches seriously as as an approach that could actually scale, you are committing yourself to the idea that we have to ask a lot more of people around politics, that if people want their politics to work better, that a much broader swath of America is going to have to be willing to engage in a different way, in a much deeper way than people do now. And in some ways, it seems to me to raise the question of, like, do you believe that politics is something that we all need to be engaged in as a practice, or it's something that you can just kind of let the people who want to vote vote and then you know the whole thing could just run on in the background. Yeah, I don't think you have to think of it as so costly. I'm heavy into the costs of politics. I, you know, we have to have a massive division of labor in our lives, and I give lots of things to lots of other people, including politics. I don't know about ninety nine point nine 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 percent of stuff that's important to me. I just assume that that my representatives will 
do the right thing, you know. Um, so I, I don't have to learn that. So I'm, I'm not a fan of some kind of polity where everybody has to be deeply engaged all the time. What I think can happen is, for example, Michael Neblos and his co-authors, uh, his, his thing about getting together a random group of people, randomized group of people talking with their member of Congress for one hour. One hour is not a big deal. People think that it's pretty important to talk with their members of Congress. They're interested in it. It seems it looks as if it's going to be um, effective and interesting. So he doesn't get the usual pattern of the, or they don't get the, that group of, of authors, doesn't get uh, the usual pattern of the more educated, the richer, uh, the whiter people being participants and the poor people not being participants. In fact, the only... <laughs> Instead of the rich being the over-participants, the only over-participants they get, the only people who participate more than their proportion of the population, are uh, the unemployed and people uh, with um, children under 12 in the home. And you think, why that? And you think, oh, wait a minute, this is on the internet. Who's going to be sort of sitting in a library with a public computer or in their home with a laptop um, and have the time, well, somebody whose kid is taking a nap or uh, someone who's unemployed. So you get slightly more um, participation from those people, but um, that's those two categories are not really super significant, like having the more educated people be the, the heavy participants or retirees being heavy participants. That would really skew uh, the outcome. So People like to do this. Um, it's it's only an hour. It's not a big deal. Or for the deliberate polls, it's only it's a weekend and it's a, a neat hotel and you get you know all expenses paid and and your meals and stuff and you get to talk with all these interesting people. It's it's fun. People like it. They rave afterwards. They they think it's a wonderful thing. They they love having do it doing it. Um, so this isn't something that I think you have to kind of sell people. This is your citizen duty, like the jury. It's something people want to do. They get off on it. And so if people want to do it, but it is, it's not that high of, a, of an investment. It's only, in some of these cases, only an hour, only an hour on the internet. It seems unlikely to me that an hour on the internet will fundamentally change us. So the, is the, the proposed transmission mechanism by which this could help ameliorate some of polarization, that it changes our representatives, it changes their idea of what we want? Both. I think it will make the representatives clearer about what their constituents want, because as we know, they do not interpret that correctly now. But also, I think it could change people. For example, supposing, I think uh, Neblo and his colleagues have figured this one out, that um, if every member of Congress, including the Senate, <laughs> did two hours a week with two different groups, one hour you know, on Monday and one hour on Tuesday or whatever, for 52 weeks in the year, and they did this for six years, they could cover a quarter of the constituents in their district. Well, imagine if that were to become a pretty standard thing to do, that, that every member of Congress would just take two hours of the week to do that with a, a bunch of their constituents. Well, okay, they'd cover a quarter in six uh, years, they'd cover another quarter, you know, da, da, da. we could expect if this were a standard thing, every citizen on this in this country could expect to have this happen a couple of times to them in their lives. They'd expect to have their spouses, their friends, their kin, their, you know, the people they hung out with doing it. The schools would teach you, you know, when it happens to you, not if it happens to you, but when you get chosen, how are you going to answer these things? Um, I think it, it would give people a different sense of their relationship with their members of Congress. This is somebody that they could expect to talk about something pretty important, terrorism, immigration, big issues with, um, in a setting in which what they said would be listened to by the member of Congress and by the other, their other, the other constituents. So I think, I think that would change uh, things slightly. I'm not saying um, it would change things deeply structurally, but I do think it would give a very different feeling to citizenship in this country. One thing that I think people might raise here is, well, you know, who's got the time, right? The, particularly among the representatives, who's got the time? And if we wanted the members of Congress to do this well, they'd have to do it a lot. And part of my, one of the no, things the that idea I- No, the idea is to just do it twice a week, one, two hours a week. That's all. That's all. That's that's all we're asking of them, just two hours a week. No, no, no. Just two hours a week for them and one hour for the constituents. No big deal. 
I think it would actually be good to be more ambitious about that. That it seems to me that right now Maybe you can be more ambitious. Yeah. All I'm saying is do that and you've just that small thing, just those two hours, and you change a huge amount. You would change everyone's expectation about their relationship with their member of Congress. And you said earlier, we don't quite have the data on how it changes the members of Congress themselves. We don't have that. No. Um, and that's the next step. They're very into it. Yeah, I would imagine they enjoy it. It must be more fun than hanging out with rich donors. <laughs> yeah, I think they they say they enjoy it. Um, and I imagine that I would enjoy it too. Um, and I would also be interested. I wouldn't just have fun. Uh, but I, 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 of course, I have fun by being interested. And we all have fun by being interested. I think they would be um, possibly even occasionally galvanized by something that somebody said, because people talk about, these constituents talk about some of their experiences. Um, and that's much more important than kissing a baby. It's really finding out what your constituents really think about these. Granted, it's going to be, they're going to be sort of somewhat shallow, but the, they, the, the constituents do read some of the, some information beforehand. So they're not so shallow. You make an interesting point in one of the pieces you wrote, where you write that we have an 18th century approach to representation that is inadequate to 21st century politics. Can you talk a bit about that? We now have to make so much more consequential decisions than they do. And that uh, is changing. That changes the, the stakes a great deal. And we also have capacity for communication, the kinds of things that I'm talking about, 175 people over the internet, those kinds of capacities for communication just didn't exist. So both the weight of the problems and the capacity to respond to them communicatively uh, have both changed dramatically. And yet we're living in a world where we still teach students things like trustee versus delegate and other language that's not relevant to today and concepts that are not so relevant today. Why haven't we thought of using the internet this way? What? Even before Michael Neblo and and, and uh, Kevin Esterling and, and David Lazar came along, why weren't we using the internet this way? You know, FDR did his fireside chats. That was a big breakthrough. We need to be using our communicative apparatus much more to have what I call recursive communication between the constituents and the representatives, ways in which you can have not just I make go into the town meeting and I make my demands and you say, oh, well, 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 I'll try to do something about that. Um, actually talking with one another in the way that you respond to me and I respond to you, that that's doable. That is doable, and it wasn't doable in the 18th century. So we, we can respond. It's such an interesting point because if you uh, – to just untangle a couple of pieces of it, you would have imagined that as we got all this communication apparatus and speed and the ability to talk all the time and get all this information out there and, and, and send it back that we'd be much better represented. I think a lot of people feel that we're not. And so it seems to me that if you you pull out some of the values here, because uh, I want to make sure I'm understanding it correctly, one thing you're saying is that communication should be recursive. Multi, it should go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, but also that it should actually be representative, that I think one of the unintended consequences of this kind of explosion of communicative possibility is that it stratified it all that much more by interest. And so the people who are being communicated with are not representative. You have more communication, but less representativeness in that communication. And you can imagine, you know, we were talking earlier, you could imagine kind of softer versions of this, you know, members of Congress hang out with constituents on the internet for an hour, two hours a week. You could also imagine much bigger ones. You could imagine really trying to construct a, a system such that you had a lot of opportunities for this sort of deliberation. It would just require people to really, to really want that to be true. Yeah. The more you require of people, the more unrepresentative a sample you're going to get. So one of the beauties of these deliberative mini-publics, they're called these these randomized citizen mini-publics, one of the beauties of them is that they don't take a, a lot of time for, for the citizen. Um, and I think that the more you demand of the citizenry, the more you're going to get the activists, the, the high, more highly educated, the um, more active people, um, and those with more extreme opinions. That's that's just uh, a fact of life. My my very first book was on town meeting. It was on a town meeting in Vermont, a very small town, five hundred. I picked it 
because of it, it was small because I thought, oh my God, you know, at least here you can get democracy. They're coming together and deciding whether or not to build a road and so forth. It was a working class town, but the richer working class people were more likely to attend the town meeting than the poorer working class people. And in the town meeting, the men were more likely to speak than the women. So the same patterns. Um, and the more you, the more you demand, if you demand a whole day, you know, you're going to get the people who have got that interest to give up the time for that whole day. This brings me then to my pessimism of this as a as a large scale approach. And and you've been very cautious in, in how you framed it, but I think sometimes people. We'll hear this, and there's an idea that this, or sort of intergroup contact, or, or other approaches, can be a, a, a real a real tool in the toolbox. But it always seems to me that you end up in this vise where, if you want something that is going to be powerful enough to really affect how people feel and act, you need to ask quite a bit of them. Um, I think it's true that people's behavior and their mindset is very hard to change in their political identity. But if you ask too much of people, then only the activists are going to do it. So it seems to me we we end up in this funny paradox. Yeah, that's exactly what this randomized thing is designed to counteract, and it, it succeeds in counteracting it. But it's not—it's not clear to me that it does. I mean, that's my question for you. How convince me that this will change the way people are acting a year later in the election, and we don't know what the representative does. So, how much can tell me more about what convinces you this is having a long-term effect on people when it happens? We have hardly started using these techniques, um, so. Let me just walk you through a few places where you can use them. And the point is you need to use them selectively. It, you also have – I want to unpack something in, in your question. Um, there are two things you want to change. One is the representatives and one is the public. And how you go about doing those two are different. By the way, if you do this stuff, uh, these randomized groups really well and bring 200 people together for a weekend and give them these incentives to go to, you know, have, by having a great hotel and all this stuff, it's expensive. So it's a million dollars a shot. You can't just do it, you know, 20 times a day um, in your constituency. So you want to pick the times that it's particularly important. So, for example, if you've got an innovation like wind power in Texas, the utilities commissioner um, had one of these deliberative polls, and they, much to his surprise, uh, kind of came out for wind power and putting a few more cents on the electric bill to pay for it. So now Texas has got more wind power than the rest of the country. So he was able to use the fact that a deliberative thinking, considering, considering weighing group of citizens came out with this as a good argument for doing something that was innovative, which otherwise might have made people, if, if, he had, if it had just been kind of his idea, there might have been much more resistance to it than people saying, well, well look, here's this group of ordinary citizens, and they decided this was a good idea. So when you have innovation that you're not sure that people will, will buy, or hot decisions like in Rome, you had to close some hospitals and no politician wanted the hospital in their district to be closed. Okay, call a citizen's assembly. Call one of these mini publics. Get them to think about what ought to be the criteria for closing hospitals and, and reducing hospital beds. Then it takes the onus off the politician. You can say, well, look, this group of citizens. So if you, what you want to do is you want to pick the specific Places where the legislature is – another one would be where the legislature is going to be biased, like um, the electoral system that, that that voted them in. They're not going to want to change that. Okay, well, so that's something you would want a citizen body to look at. Um, places where the rich are very, very powerful. Okay, how about we have the citizens consider and make some recommendations on those issues? Some places where the activists are going, you know, going nuts – well, let's get some ordinary citizens in here. You you don't want to do it just across all, all over. It's too expensive. But you pick the things you want to do, uh, use it for well, and it gives you a way of of uh, you know Hegel had this word Aufhebung. It means sort of like <laughs> you've got the thesis and the synthesis. You know, you jump over it, you incorporate it, you 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 move beyond it. You get to something else. Well, you can use a citizen body like that. You can say. We're in a jam. Let's bring in a citizen body. So I think that I find that to be a much more convincing case. I mean, we've been talking about this largely in terms of polarization, but but we are framing it there as more. 
is as an alternative pathway to solution finding that either can be used for validation or can be used for taking an issue where for some reason the representatives are not seen as legitimate or that the hard decisions may be seen as too politically costly. And you can move the onus onto something that people might trust a little bit more in an age of low trust in government. That seems that seems real to me. Yeah, yeah. Mark Warren and a, and a colleague called it trusted proxies, and I, and I think that's right. That's probably a good place to, to to bring us in for a close. So let me ask you the question while you stand the podcast, which are, what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience? Well, I think I've 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 talked about quite a few of them. <laughs> I mean, I certainly would I certainly would recommend Michael Nebelo and Kevin Esterling and uh, David Lazar's um, book Politics with the People. They did some spectacular experiments where they showed that cynics like you, my dear, are often completely wrong about what the public wants and and what the most cynical of the public uh, wants. Uh, so it's a great book. Um, I think also any of Jim Fishkin's books about um, Deliberative polling, like democracy, when the people are thinking, that's that's his most recent book. Um, it's full of stuff. Mongolia has written one these written into their constitution that they have to have deliberative polls at certain points. Um, so it's got a lot of good stuff. And and then we began with Francis Lee's Insecure Majorities. Um, this is a really penetrating book about the causes of polarization, um, which we spoke about at the beginning of of our talk. Jane Mansbridge, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you to Professor Mansbridge for being here. I'll be honest, I've been trying to think about what, what what was my takeaway on this episode as somebody who's been skeptical of all this. And I like I like deliberative democracy solutions. I really do. And I think there, there are places, uh, as she identifies in here, where they could really work or they could help or they could be, be useful on the side. I don't think they're an answer to polarization. Um, I just don't. I don't think you can scale them. As she's saying, I, I think that you would need to ask too much of people to make them an answer to something that structural and big. It, there are a lot of things in politics that can make things better. Deliberative democracy seems to me to be one of those. And as she was very careful to say, you know, moving things to a negotiating space, moving them to a deliberating space, that, that, that can help. But if you tried to use it in, as, a, as, a, as an effort to solve the way our politics runs at the headline level, right? The big things, the things that people are engaged on, who sits on the Supreme Court, whether or not we should pass the Affordable Care Act, should Donald Trump be impeached? I think that what you'd get is if you tried to do it at scale, you'd have to be doing it so often. Either you'd be asking too much participation to get representation, or in order to get representation, you wouldn't get uh, you wouldn't be getting so much participation that you would actually change people in any fundamental way. Uh, our political opinions are relatively deeply rooted. Our political identities are much more deeply rooted, and changing them takes a lot. So I, I kind of end this a little bit. Not exactly where I started because you know I'm, I'm fascinated by a lot of these approaches as ways to make politics a little bit better on the margin. But in terms of deliberation being a polarization solution, uh, I'm still skeptical. I'm open to, to, to more counter arguments, but I am still skeptical. Anyway, but thank you so much to Professor Mansbridge for being here. Thank you all of you for being here. To my engineer, Cynthia Gill, producer, Jeffrey Geld, Desert Clown Shows, Vox Media, podcast production. 